Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Alf Poor, who's the CEO of Ideanomics, their NASDAQ-listed company, um, trying to insert themselves into the EV thematic in China. Been there for a few years uh, and have made significant headroads. So they're replacing catalytic converter engines with batteries. Um, they have been doing this for trucks, lorries, uh, trucks, and commercial vehicles. Um, the, they also help the fleet managers to finance out this change, which is sort of driven by government policy. Um, but the real price for them is actually clipping a coupon on the supply of energy uh, at the gas stations, which they are enabling all across China, 100,000 of them. So lots to be excited about. Sit back and enjoy the podcast. Alf, how are you doing, sir? Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. So where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from the New York suburbs this morning. In hiding? We're in hiding from COVID. We are indeed. Okay. Well, look, uh, look Alf, it's the first time we've met and the first time we've heard this story. So I'm, looking, I'm very much looking forward to it because it's, a, it's a quite an exciting one. Um, why don't you kind of kick off and maybe give us a sort of one minute overview of what the business is and then we can maybe get stuck into business plans and what the future looks like. Okay. Yeah, so iDynamics started out as a company that was really looking to get involved in, in industries that are transformative. And a couple of years ago, we really started to shape the business around two key areas. Uh, one of them is fintech, specifically uh, the use of blockchain for trading systems. Um, and also the, the second one is uh, EV, the electric vehicle industry as a you know, uh, catalyst for change in, in what has traditionally been uh, uh, internal combustion engine driven automotive industry. And more recently, we've been putting a lot of our energy into the EV side because that's really our growth engine at this point. Okay, and I've, you know when we were doing our research, we noticed that this it's it's had various incarnations along the way, and share prices up at five and a half bucks, and you know down again. So huge kind of swings uh, to this. I mean, what, what do you put that down to? Well, this has been a business in transformation, and I think whenever you transform any business, you need to convince the market as to what you're doing. And then you need to prove it out through fundamentals. And I think, you know, starting with the last quarter, we started to produce revenue from our EV division. And that's really the fundamentals I think the market have been looking for. So now we can show them execution. I think we'll see uh, stability and, and shareholder value growth in the future. How long have you been working with uh, iDynamics? Uh, been with iDynamics exactly two years, um, but involved a few months uh, longer than that before I officially came on board. Right. Okay. And what were you brought on board to do? I originally came in in more of an operational role, uh, but slowly progressed through as I helped them get uh, the US operations stood up and uh, where we wanted it to be, I, I migrated into the CEO seat. Again, just looking through the history of this, there's been a, a number of kind of, not false starts, but a number of initiatives, a number of projects, which you know don't seem to fit in with the, you know, the FinTech or EV thematic so much. And, and notice you've offloaded a few recently. So when you say, I mean, have you been brought on board to kind of, you know, clean house, as it were, get focused? To, to some extent, but that would be unfair on, on the previous management. Obviously, the, uh, the management team had a fail-fast strategy. Whenever you're looking at uh, transformative industries, you look at new ideas, and new ideas are obviously slightly more risky than, uh, than other endeavours. Um, but I came in with a, with a history of being in startups. I've worked in eight startups previously, all in the B2B space. And all of them have been a, a success to a greater or lesser degree. We've never turned the lights out. So I came in with a very, um, you know, focus around making sure that execution is important, delivery is important, and growing the business profitably is important. Okay. 
So it seems to be a company with big ideas, okay? And, and, and I want to talk about a couple of those. So let's start off with the EV thematic component here. Because, you know, if, you, if, you know, if I said to someone, oh, we're going to um, make existing uh, lorries or mobile inventory uh, cleaner by replacing uh, engines of, uh, with batteries, it doesn't sound very exciting. It sounds quite dirty. But you're, how, how are you positioning it? Well, it, it's a very interesting uh, industry. Um, if you look at automotive, that's really not the play here. Okay, the automotive is the means to the end. When we say we look for transformative opportunities, okay, what's really happening in electrification of vehicles? Right? There is a transition of energy demand away from petroleum products, gasoline and diesel, known as petrol in your public world, um, onto electricity. Now, if you think about it, you look at the automotive industry, the GMs, the Fords, the Fiat Chryslers, et cetera, okay, they go through typical you know, economic cycles, good years, bad years. You look at the people supplying the energy that's driven the vehicles for the last 100 years, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, okay, they don't have a good year, they make a few billion. They have a, they have a, a good economic cycle, they make tens of billions, right? So this is really about the energy demand, and that's where our focus is. So although we're involved in the industry, we do own a, an automotive EV manufacturer in uh, Malaysia called Tree Electric, and we are planning to bring our own branded vehicles into North America and Europe under our Medici Motorworks brand. The objective here really, which is what Tesla understands and not a lot of other people do here, is the end game is about the transition in energy demand. Billions, trillions of dollars spent every year on petroleum products that will now be moving into electricity demand. Okay, so so try and explain what that means. I get the tree electric, the the you know electric bikes and the Medici Motor Works. That you know what the potential is there. But again, you're talking about energy. So where do you fit in the mix? Where are you trying to fit in the mix? Yeah, so I'll I'll explain what we're doing in China first because that's the first market we we chose to go into. We chose to go into China first, not because it's easy, but because it's regulatory driven which means you can be relatively confident that you can derive revenues when there's um, you know, regulatory deadlines in place, particularly some of them are quite near term, like all their city buses have to be changed by 2022. Okay, when we go into a country like China, it currently has 90% of the world's EV manufacturers. So there's no point in ideonomics going in as another manufacturer or another brand, because it's already a saturated market. So what we chose to do was we chose to go into EV enablement to help commercial fleet customers understand how to transition their vehicles, how to get through the sales procurement process, the rebates process, the lease financing process, right? And, and then move them into being a customer of ours so we can market them wholesale prepaid electricity or discounted access to our preferred partner charging device so that we can get that strong, rich, recurring revenue from the electricity demand. Okay, so you, you took a very sort of complicated uh, supply chain there and simplified it for us. But if, if you don't mind, let's break it down. Let's break down the problem you're solving for these uh, fleet managers, okay? So first up, they're sitting there with these huge, big diesel fleets, and you're saying to them, there's a better way. Yeah, we're saying to them there's a better way. Um, there's a better way in a number of areas, okay? It's not just about switching to electricity, right, to be cleaner and meet the regulations. Okay, EV vehicles have a lot less moving parts in them than internal combustion engine, about 10% of the moving parts. That means there's less maintenance costs, there's less repairs, and the vehicle life cycle is much longer. Okay, the second issue is you save money 
when you fuel your vehicles with, with electricity versus gasoline and diesel. Okay, so not only are they, if you look at the whole life cycle cost of owning a vehicle, it's going to come down dramatically with these. But, but let's, I, I want to try and understand the problem you're solving, because if I can understand the problem you're solving, I can understand the, the, the scale of the opportunity here. So these fleet guys, you were saying to them, okay, your, your costs will come down because there's less moving parts in terms of maintenance. You're not pumping diesel in there. Electricity costs a lot less in terms of recharging these batteries. But for them to actually change over from where they're at with catalytic converters into battery, there's a real cost for them. That's sometimes prohibitive even if you've got this mandate from the, the government coming down the line saying, hey, you've got to by X date. So again, what's that discussion look like? Yeah, so the discussion's interesting. First of all, they don't know where to go because we're focused on the commercial space, not the passenger space, right? If you're in the passenger car space and you're looking for a new family car and you want it to be electric, right? You've got two choices, Tesla or everything else, right? And most people are picking Tesla, as you know. Um, but in the commercial vehicle space, it's a very, very different landscape. If you think about like you're walking down the street in any country, okay, VW Passat goes by, 5 Series BMW goes by, Ford Focus goes by, okay, because of the amount of advertising done by those brands commercially, TV, internet, uh, newspapers, etc., you're ambiently aware of what that vehicle is. You don't know why you know it's a VW Passat or a Ford Focus, but you know it is, okay? You see a city bus go by, a garbage truck, a fire truck, right? You have no idea who they're made by, a heavy goods vehicle. You may know Scania, one or two other names in the business, but, but you don't really know um, who makes those commercial vehicles. There's a lot less brand awareness in the commercial vehicle sector. So you take that dynamic already from a commercial fleet perspective and you add in almost everybody is a new entrant to the market. How do you pick who to work with? If you're a commercial fleet customer sitting there right now, how do you know which companies are making reliable EV trucks when almost every player in the market is less than five years old. Okay, that's where people like iDynomics come in. Right? We work from everybody right the way through from local and national governments on the rebate programs, through all of the best battery makers. We have partners like CATL, world's leading battery maker, okay? major manufacturers. Okay? You know, we know the entire landscape. We've got a McKenzie-style um, IP knowledge of this industry at this point. And we're making our mistakes at scale in China, right? Which is, you know, our first market we're in. So when we come to copy paste our model, as we go to other countries, uh, we'll have a very refined model that'll be a, a really important, important point of purchase for these commercial fleet customers. Okay, so talk to me about the money side of things. Because the, the, the point I made there was the cost of this transformation from catalytic to battery can be prohibitive. So how are you solving their problem? Yeah, the, the, the ultimate problem right now is uh, around the financing. So I'll tell you how we solve their problem. There, there, are, um, you know, there are rebate programs available. You know, I, I own an EV, right? I bought an EV passenger car in the US, right? People don't understand the amount of money the government will give you to move on to a clean energy car. I don't think the government, all the governments internationally really understand why they're promoting the programs other than ambiently they want to be doing something in the environment. But you can save a lot of money doing it. You get 7,500 bucks off of a car in the US, right? So that already brings the cost down, okay? But the big challenge is uh, EV is very different to an internal combustion engine when you break down what are you, what are you actually trying to do for the commercial fleet customer, okay? Because half the vehicle's uh, value is in the battery, in the battery pack and the energy management, right? 
and most of that can be taken out and put in another vehicle. So that's like being able to take three or four screws out of a car, lift the engine out and put it in another one. So the lease financing companies are like, whoa, okay, how do we deal with this problem? Because we can't predict the future residual value if you're going to be swapping batteries because the batteries, such a, you know, in a, in a truck or a bus, it's 55% of the value. In a car like a Tesla, it's 35% of the value. If that thing can be taken out and changed, right, and it doesn't have a VIN number on it, like an engine does, well, then you have a real problem from a lease financing perspective. So that's where you've seen the, the commercial sales be a lot um, uh, less vigorous, I think, than you've seen with, with um, you know, maybe Tesla's sales. Tesla's looking at a, you know, upper middle market, right? So they're cash buyers for the most part, but they can afford to buy that vehicle and it's a higher end vehicle. Commercial, it doesn't exist like that, right? They have a balance sheet built over many years. It says they rotate their fleet out within a certain amount of time and they're used to paying 10, 15% deposit for lease financing. The, the EV world kind of blew that up. The lease financing companies can't jump in with the way they borrow the money from the capital markets because their capital at risk is, is structured a different way now if you try to, try to do an EV deal. So what we've done, and we need to solve this problem regionally as we, as we move um, you know, through different countries, is in China, we went and we created a consortia. And we went to the typical people who you know, back lease financing funds, the typical corporate debt buyers, so people like insurance companies with cash in their balance sheet. But we also did a bit of a masterstroke. We went and rounded up all of the electrical utilities as well. Okay, because who's the downstream beneficiary of the change in energy demand? It's the electrical companies. So we went to, um, you know, Southern Grid, State Grid, Three Gorges, GCL. We came up with a program where they participate and they will take the risk on the difference with the battery. Okay, because they're, they're, they can afford to play the long game. Okay, because they're the people who are getting the demand for the electricity. Even if I market the electricity in China and I get a, you know, certain percentage for selling at wholesale or giving access to the uh, charging partner network, okay, still the underlying electricity is coming from one of these, these major grid suppliers. So they're the ultimate beneficiary in that. And that's what we did to solve that problem um, in China. And we were responsible for that. Our chairman and some of his team put that entire consortia together so that we could get these lease financing funds up and running, get these commercial vehicle owners, um, fleet operators into EV within the regulatory timelines they need, which has been a big headache. Okay, so that's solved their problem, their financing issue. So you've realized that you wouldn't be able to do the work unless they had the money to let you pay you to do the work, so you've solved that problem for them. Um, but you said, we've made a lot of mistakes in China. Uh, we've learned there. That's been our you know, learning ground. Yeah, we're making our mistakes in China. I wouldn't say we made a lot of mistakes, but whenever you launch into a new industry, okay, you're sailing in uncharted waters. Right, so you sail down cul-de-sacs, you have to turn around and back out again. Right? We're making a market. When you have to put together a consortia of lease financing funds, okay, you're, you're building that market. Okay? And, and as soon as we, we start to deploy those funds, which we're doing this quarter going forward, um, you know, I think we'll see other copycat funds come to the market because there's a lot of capital in China that needs to be deployed like there is in most countries. And when they see what we're doing and they see we're making money from it, uh, I think that'll happen. And we embrace that. Because China has a big problem. It has a lot of very large polluted cities. And it has a very short regulatory window. And up until now, the, uh, the passenger vehicle sales have been very strong in EV, but the commercial vehicle sales have not. Well, t- tell me about that, because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by you 
look, it's very entrepreneurial, it strikes me. Our research that you're a very entrepreneurial um, business. Now, 300 million market cap today and previously over a billion, uh, you know, has its pluses and minuses. But in terms of the way that a company looks at a marketplace, like China, which people are dying to get into, um, I like the way you're looking down the food chain. Because the, the other thing which Meg does, which is um, your, your uh, mobile energy group, you're looking at payment systems and charging stations and energy supply chains as well. You're really going down the, the supply, the food chain here. What makes you think that you can succeed there? So surely there's a lot of competition. Well, I think it comes down to, to a couple of things, okay? Um, we developed our model, which we call S to F to C, which is sales to financing to charging, okay? And it's really the charging, like I said, that's really what we want to get access to because that's the rich recurring revenue streams in the future. Okay? How can we play in the charging? Own the customer which is the fleet operator. How do you own the customer? You do the sales and the financing aspects for him because it's tricky in EV because it's a, new, it's a new way of doing things. Whenever there's a new way of doing things, people need a guiding rail or their handheld. Okay, so think of it as a fishing analogy. Okay, the sales procurement that we do, helping them find the right vehicle with the right spec for the right price. Okay, that's the hook. The bait, okay, is the lease financing, giving them terms that they're used to that they currently can't get in the lease financing market. Okay, then we've acquired a valuable customer. He may own a fleet of 20, 200, 2,000, 10,000 vehicles. Okay, once we have him as a customer and he trusts us as a service provider, we then market his energy needs to him. We can sell you with our utility partners, wholesale prepaid electricity. Okay, and we can also, sorry, and we can also, um, you know, um, selling you access to our preferred partner charging networks. Okay. CL, GCL, others are building their own charging network systems at this time. They're our partners. We have agreements with them. If we give one of our fleet customers access, he will get a discount for in-network charging, and we'll get a small percentage of it. Okay. What was that? S to the F to the C? Yes. S to F to C. Sales to financing to charging. Very gangster of you, I think. Um, it's, not, it's memorable, though. Like we, 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 do, we do like the rap over here in the US. <laughs> you, do. you do. But tell me, you, you gave me a clue there about how you're doing this. Because I was going to ask, how do you finance all this? But you're talking about charging energy supply partners and so forth. So let's, let's maybe step back here and look at, look at the group a bit. Okay, Can you, I, want to, I want to sort of understand how it's been set up. You know, you've got a big, you know, charismatic... Uh, guy at the top who's going to set this thing up. He's, he's, he's busy. He's got fingers in a lot of other pies. So how has this business been set up? And like I say, it comes back to you know, why you've been drafted in here. What are you trying to build? Yeah, so, so um, uh, Chairman Wu, he's a, he's a gift to any company. Okay, what he has is he has an incredible network and he has a capability to shrink a sales cycle for you. What's that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, say, say you want to work with a, uh, a utility provider um, who, who provides cheap, clean electricity, like Three Gorges. Okay, world's largest hydroelectric dam, huge uh, electricity company in China, one of their main power companies. It's very difficult for me, as somebody without any influence in China, pick up the phone and get that deal to happen. Okay, I can call Dr. Wu and say, Chairman, I need you to get us a relationship with Three Gorges. He can get on the phone, he can make it happen. 
And instead of there being an 18-month sales cycle in which there's got to be a lot of learning about each other, getting to know you, corporate you know, lawyers taking six months to turn the, the agreements around, Bruno can use his influence within China and he can crush that cycle down into a two to three month program. Okay. So that's really the value of him. Underneath him, you know, we have operators that are, that are responsible for running the business. So you know, in, in China, one of the most important things we did last year is Bruno and I went out and looked for somebody to run our MEG group. Okay, and the gentleman that we brought in came from GCL, which is a clean energy provider and, and has a lot of um, uh, plans to be uh, influential in providing both clean energy and charging networks for EV. And prior to that, he was a sales executive at Geely, which is an international automotive company that owns some high-profile brands like Volvo. So we put somebody at the head of the ship there who knows the industry, both from the electric, electrical demand perspective and from the automotive perspective. Similarly, in, in uh, Malaysia, we hired a, a gentleman called Datuk Menon to go in and head up uh, Tree Electric. Okay? He um, uh, set up the operations for, uh, for LDV DAF, which is an Brit old British laden truck uh, van that you may remember from years ago. And um, that was bought by a Chinese company. They set up operations in China. He did everything from setting up the assembly plants to the supply chain to parts, everything else. Again, we're putting the people in place who are experienced operators. So we use Bruno Wu to get the door open. We use him to get the deal done. Then we bring top-class professionals in to help do the job. Just on Tree Electric, why, why go into manufacturing? Because everything else seems to be about uh, consultancy, services, putting partners in place. It's about you know, ideas and, and joining up the dots. Why, why manufacturing? That's fraught with danger, isn't it? One very simple reason. When we went to speak to the manufacturers in China, Okay, so we could help get top-tier relationships so we could make money in the sales procurement side of the business. Um, they said to us, we love your story. We love what you're doing. You're bringing the whole industry together. It's great that you guys are evangelists, but you're just a source of orders for us. Okay, until you have an order, we have nothing interesting to talk about. We said, well, that's never the case. What's your real pain? So they turned around and said, okay, well, our real pain point is this. Okay, we've been told as a bus manufacturer, that we've got to do you know, something like 25 years worth of bus manufacturing in a four and a half year window to meet the government regulatory guidelines. And we're in China. This is not like the UK, the US, where we set a deadline of 2022 and it's 2032 and you're on Panorama or 60 Minutes talking about budget overruns and things like that. It doesn't happen in China. You know, they say the bad thing about China is it's authoritarian. Well, when you want to get something good done, being authoritarian is, is, a, is, is, a, is a pro, not a con. Okay, so when they say 2022, they mean 2022. Okay, and they will, they will use um, different fines and things they have for their carbon credits against those particular companies or provinces or city municipalities if they don't meet those deadlines. So the manufacturers said, if we're going to create 25 years worth of buses in four and a half years, we are going to create tremendous overcapacity. Now, China's at either the national level or at the province level, they're subsidizing it, so that's great. But I've still got to buy factory, build factories, I've still got to hire workers. Okay, what happens in January 1, 2023, when the last bus has been delivered? I'm waiting for a vehicle accident in order to sustain my business, right? Because China's not a growing population, it's not like India. Okay, so once all the buses have been replaced, they have a 17 year life. Uh, shelf life, okay, it's going to be a long time before another bus is sold and this one breaks down or gets into a 
So they have an overcapacity issue. Southeast Asia is a very friendly Belt and Road trading partner for China. So owning an electrical vehicle brand in Malaysia, the only country that has an automotive manufacturing history because of Proton, also has a highly skilled work workforce. It has uh, factories for uh, Intel and others there, um, is a very attractive proposition. So by making that move to acquire Tree Electric, we suddenly became very, very interesting to a lot of major automotive manufacturers in China. Okay, when you're in the commercial space, you don't mind being an OEM and building those buses, building those garbage trucks, building those police cars, building those fire trucks, those vans, those, those uh, lorries and trucks, okay, and having the Tree Electric brand on them. Because what you need to do is you need your business to, to be sustainable after the regulatory deadline is gone. So that was the, the key strategic reason why we purchased Tree Electric. But why is that your problem? You're trying to say, I'm trying to create a relationship with these people, so therefore we're going to help set this up. Well, I wanted preferential terms with them, with, with the manufacturers, right? The BYDs, the SACs, the JAICs, the Yinglongs in China, right? Dongfeng, the big, the big boys, right? Um, until I had orders for them, I wasn't interested, okay? You know, you guys sell some buses, then come and tell us and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll sell you the buses to sell to your customers, okay? But then when we introduced the notion of giving them a, a, an export, and an international expansion, then we became much more strategically important to them. Then we got more preferential terms, which means when we sell a bus, we can create a greater spread for ourselves because they're giving them to us at a discount of which nobody else can achieve. Because I have another strategic reason why they want to be involved. Okay. Can you make money? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just about relationship. You, you, you can make money. That's a commercial decision. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown on how we make money on the, um, on the S2F2C. On the sales, we make money on spreads. So we buy the vehicle at one price, we sell it on for another. And again, because we're strategically important to them and we have volume of sales, okay, we get a much better deal than any fleet customer would be going direct. Okay? In terms of the lease financing, although we put the consortium together, we're not actively part of the lease financing company. We just sit on the board. Okay? So they pay us a commission, find us fee, whenever we place the deals. Well, the deals are large because it's commercial vehicles, they're big ticket items. So we get a commission out of that. So we get a spread, we get a commission, but those are just nice uh, income streams in order to acquire that fleet customer. What we really want to do is we want to make about 3% recurring revenue off of the energy we sell. Okay, so so we're, getting, we're getting kind of commissions and spreads from the lease finance and sales today in order to help us acquire the customer and pay the bills. But really what we're after is that recurring revenue stream. You get three cents on the dollar or three pennies on the pound for every gallon that's filled up Right, you're a very wealthy company. That's where ideonomics is heading, and that's the end game. Okay. You talked about learning from your mistakes or making mistakes in China. You're running a pilot in Nanjing, which is somewhat just slightly west of Shanghai from memory. Um, how long is that pilot running? You're, this is for the, the S to the F to the C process. You're saying, well, if it can work here, we can roll that out across China, first of all, and then internationally. Is that the plan? Yeah, that's the idea. I mean, um, when you're involved in EV enablement, as I said earlier, you speak to everybody from government bodies through to, you know, fleet customers, parts suppliers, battery suppliers, everything. So we got into some discussions with the government and the government said, look, we love EV, we're promoting EV, our cities are polluted, but we need a, we need a game plan for three of the biggest producers of the money in the treasury 
which is PetroChina, Sinopec, and Sinook, our three big petroleum companies. They're state-owned. They give us the majority of our treasury revenue. If you look at the you know, total kind of state-owned entities in the PRC, they give them a huge amount of money. Okay? We do not want to be out of business tomorrow because EV suddenly uh, hit a tipping point and you know, everybody's driving EV. So they came to us and they said, we want to do something, which is we want to convert all those fuel stations so that we don't have a hard stop for our treasury revenues, but we have a gradual curve and then our, our petroleum companies get into the energy demands. And they've all made grid edge technology investments like BP, Shell and others have in recent years requiring this kind of charging station technology. Um, so the idea here is going to a petrol forecourt, gas station forecourt, there's 10 pumps. Okay, we're going to take out the last two right now. We're going to make those EV fast charging. We're going to leave the other eight as gasoline and diesel or petrol. Okay. And then in some areas, depending on how fast the growth is, it'll be as quickly as five years. We'll just keep taking two pumps off until the last two pumps are left and their legacy are gasoline and diesel. Okay. In others, you'll be able to replace the whole one. It just really depends on the city you're in, whether it's a, a suburban area or a rural area. The rural areas we anticipate will take longer. Um, but the idea is to, to replenish those. Now, that's interesting for China. Why? Because they own more than 100,000 pieces of real estate in prime locations called gas stations. They don't want to shutter those and put a for sale sign up. Those will be hard to sell. Right? They also don't want to lose their, their revenues into the treasury. They need to stay in the energy business. They just need to transform. And they've done a study that tells them if they can get the DC fast charging time down around 10 minutes, so it's only a couple of minutes more than filling up your car with petrol, um, Consumer habits won't change that quickly. If consumers are ambiently aware there's a network out there they can refuel at, they don't care if it's electricity or petroleum. Okay, so what I'm what I'm hearing at the moment is you guys are, I'll say, take this the right way, a kind of glorified sales team who have solved problems, but which is great for now because you're establishing relationships, you're making things happen for lots of companies. Lovely, but that's a short-term gain. I need to believe that you're going to be able to clip this 3% on the energy going forward. That's the big prize in all of this. So how do you assure me that you know how to do that and you're going to be able to do that? Yeah, so, so that, that's the most important part. And that's where the S2F2C is important. Like I said, we're providing a, a value-added service, right? And helping these people get the right vehicle, the right spec for the right price on the right lease financing terms then they trust us as a customer. Only through that process can we then market the electricity products. Okay, we have a deal with China Union Pay, which is the equivalent of Visa and MasterCard wrapped in one, okay, to create a four-in-one energy card. So they're going to have a card, which actually be an app in China because no one uses plastic anymore. Every, all the payments are electronic through phones. Um, so the app will allow them, if they have this app, to get discounts at those partner networks. That's our app. We're, we're guaranteed to get the revenue stream. Okay. That's very good. And, okay, you talked about China, you know, it's very authoritarian, it's very good for getting things done, but um, does it stop competition coming in? No, it doesn't. No, uh, BP are working with, uh, with uh, Didi, the, uh, you know, the China equivalent of Uber, to, uh, to put charging networks in. Um, China does actually allow foreign investment and foreign companies to come in. Uh, China is opaque by nature. But it's not, uh, it's not the, the difficult uh, trading environment you, many people think it is. Actually, on the ground, we find them to be very buttoned up, very business focused, 
um, and, and open to foreign investment, but it has to be done in the right way because China just works a little bit differently than the West does. I mean, do you think your share price has been affected by the whole the Trump trade war, the kind of rhetoric that's going around, the anti-China type statements? Yeah, yeah, we do. A lot of people don't understand. I mean, Bruno, we're our chairman. Obviously, he's a very important person in China. He's married to a, a, you know, a, you know, one of the favorite daughters of China, who's a who's a high-profile media personality. Um, but he's a U.S. citizen, and this is an American company, and all of our operations in China foreign-owned entities. It's what, this is how China sees them. So, you know, we have to do a lot of work and a lot of advocacy to be a, basically a U.S. company because the obvious thing, you know, everyone says to us, oh, you know, you're Chinese. Well, we're not Chinese because when we're in China, they're saying to us, okay, we need specific assurances from you guys because you're enriching NASDAQ-based investors because you're a public company. You're a U.S. public company. So, you know, so we, we get it on both sides. And, and, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's probably one of the toughest challenges in the job is China's cautious because we're a U.S. public company and the U.S. sees us with heavy operations in China and some you know, meaningful Chinese individuals within the, you know, within the company. Um, you know, so, so they're trying to see it like that. And, uh, you know, in the middle, we're just saying, okay, let the politics be the politics. Okay? We know what we're good at. Let's keep focused on the business. China has a problem that needs to be solved. We're adding value. You know, let's make some money. Is Trump a problem for a business like yours? Uh, hasn't been so far. You know, I, I don't know how much of it's just rhetoric in the media for, for soundbite's sake and how much of it's actually true. I can tell you that, um, you know, other than questions about us being a, a NASDAQ-listed company, um, no one's ever mentioned Trump to us in China, never comes up in the conversation. Um, you know, we're all focused on doing the job, which is getting the pollution levels down and getting him to move on to clean energy vehicles. So, uh, and politics don't really get spoken too much in China anyway. It's not one of their pastimes. Their pastime is, you know, food and drink and, and you know, and doing business. So, you know, so it's a, it's a slightly different culture than the West. You know, we're obsessed with the politics and things like that. They're just not. They don't have elections, right? So for them, there's not so much focus on the day-to-day politics like, like we Okay, help me understand the size of the opportunity here, because I think when people, when you first kind of started talking to the marketplace, people were excited about your ability to take advantage of your connections in China and break into the Chinese market. Everyone in every sector wants to do that, from the apples of this world, Facebooks down to you know anyone anyone you care to mention. You, it looked like you were going to be able to do that. And I think the market reacted really positively. But tell me a bit more about the realities of doing business in China. What are the things that you have to do carefully? You know, relationships are one thing, but it's got to be more to it than that. It's a very, very um, regulated and documentation heavy process to work in China. People think it's not. People think it's the Wild West fly by night. It's not. Okay, there's a lot of things in China that occur. I'll give you one, one very specific example. Um, you raise an invoice, okay? It would be called a VAT invoice in the UK, sales tax invoice in the US, right? You pay that at the end of the month or the end of the quarter in the Western world. You pay that at the point of billing in China. You send out an invoice. You need to log onto a government website, get a serial number to attach to your invoice so they can trace that you charge somebody and you have to remit it immediately. That's one of the challenging things is, is the administration side of it more than the culture side of it. China's very interesting. People think it's a communist country, et cetera. 
It's a fully westernized capital market in a communist country. There is no difference to here. There is McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Gucci, Gap, you know, cars ranging from Fords and Buicks through the Lamborghinis on the street. You know, this is, this is not the China of 50 years ago. This is a very, very modern country. So with all, the, with all the normal modern entrepreneurial dynamics that you would expect to see in the West. That's really interesting you say that, because again, we, we've spoken to a couple of fund managers recently, who, US fund managers, and they've got a view of China. And I guess you know, people are going to be talking their playbook a little bit here, but th- there is an anti-China rhetoric going on in the US at the moment, which is not necessarily conducive to doing business, as you've just described. Um, do you see any any kind of conversation? I know you've said they don't talk about politics, but is there an anti-West approach to this? Uh, no, there's a lot of questions why. You know, um, they basically say to us, look, why do you hate us, right? We manufacture everything you want us to manufacture very cheaply because we've got a billion four people, right? So we have low labor costs, right? We make everything you want. We do everything you want to do, right? Apple's one of the richest companies in the world, right? And the reason that they're so rich is because we can make the iPhone so cheap, right? So the mo- they keep most of the margin. So why are we the bad guys, right? We're a non-religious society by and large, right? so we're not bringing any religious overtones into it. We love the West. We love Hollywood, right? We love all of this stuff, right? Um, we love all of your brands. All of our shopping malls are packed with all of your people buying all of your brands, right? And here's a very, very simple statistic that, that no one likes to talk about, okay? Um, very, very few cars, Chinese cars, are sold in the U.S. China's one of the U.S.'s largest car markets. Just have a look at the recent earnings coming out from the GM, comments from the GM CEO, the Ford CEO. China's one of their most important markets. You know, then you look at other companies out there, Stanley Black & Decker, right? COVID-19, supply chain issues, why? Because the majority of their parts and everything that go into their thing, they're all manufactured in China, right? The same. So, so I don't know how you can have this love-hate relationship with your with your engine room, which is basically what China is for the world, right? It, it does all of its manufacturing, right? And then it, it feels to me a, a little bit like being in a you know a, a tough marriage where you have an argument and then the next morning the wife wakes up and it's like, oh, hi, honey, what's for breakfast? And she's confused. And I think that's the role China's playing right now. It's getting bashed, but it's doing all the work for the Western consumption. So for me, very strange dynamic. So all they ask us is, why do you hate us? Which is, you know, in many ways, it's heartbreaking to hear, right? Because you've got a country that's ready and willing to work to give you the goods at the price that the West wants to pay for them, um, but also expects to be the scapegoat. But do you think there's a, it's like, there's a frustration out there? Because you, you know, reading this morning in the Financial Times, you've got you know, Russia and Chinese talking about, or well, continuing to talk about their own currency you know, to compete with the dollar. And that's obviously not going to go down well in, in your neck of the woods. Um, do, you, do you think that's going to get resolved with the elections at the end of the year, if, if uh, Democrats get come in? Or is it just part of the new world economy that we're looking at? Yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's a few issues here. I think, um, you know, it's easy to take shots at China, uh, communist country. So immediately when you put that label on it, it has a negative connotation. Um, I think the, the bigger issue is um, China is very fast becoming capitalist and westernized. As I mentioned, all those brands, all the, the restaurants are packed, the shopping malls are packed. But when you've got 1.4 billion people, 
right? You've got four times the population of the US. It's just a matter of time before that economy becomes the largest in the world, right? And I think there, there you're probably looking at the real geopolitical issue is, you know, is, is the US and the West, countries like the US, Germany, these massive economies, are they happy not being number one and number two? I think the answer is no. Is that, is that the answer I meant to? Meant to? <laughs> I think you're right. Well, speaking to some of these fund managers, I think I think that that's that's probably what, how they perceive it. Um, okay. Well, look. Thanks for that insight into China, because I think it's always interesting. There's always two sides of the story, and I try and encourage people to listen to both sides of the story. Um, with regards to your numbers, okay, your Q2 numbers came out weren't particularly good because of something called COVID. Uh, that's going to roll over, and presumably going to roll over into Q3. Um, how does how does this year look for you? Obviously, you and lots of people affected by the pandemic, but how specifically is it affecting you? Yeah, Q three and Q four will be uh, will be very uh, good quarters for us. So we can expect quarter over quarter growth here on in. We're making deliveries. Um, you know, we're only halfway through the Q. The Q is already better than Q two was. Q three um, considerably better. So um, um, you know, I think the most important thing to understand here is in terms of commercial EV, it's been nascent until this year, the whole industry. Okay, you see people on fire right now out there um, through these reverse mergers they've done into SPACs, right? The, the, um, the Nicholas of the world, the Fiskers, et cetera. Um, these guys are just taking orders. Okay, we've started making sales. Okay, we're also, we're also not, uh, uh, although we, we, we will be to some extent in the US, but we're also not driven by a single brand. We're able to work with multiple manufacturers. So if the commercial fleet operator's needs are not met by, you know, another brand like a Fisker or a, or a Nikola, they'll go elsewhere. With us, they don't necessarily need to do that. Right, we can work with any manufacturer because we offer a full end-to-end service provider. We're not just the, the um, you know, the manufacturer where you, where you make a go or no go decision. So I think, you know, we're, we're ahead of the curve in terms of getting the EV, commercial EV out the door. Uh, we're making those sales now. I think you'll see some very interesting numbers in Q3 and Q4 from us as the big ticket items, the buses and the trucks uh, orders start to get fulfilled. I think that'll be much more meaningful. Uh, and I think investors can look forward to, you know, profitable quarters ahead. I mean, um, last quarter, we, we got several million dollars in revenue in, which is great to prove our model, great to prove that we've got over COVID. But we also brought forward a lot of non-cash items because the quarter, you know, wasn't stellar, right? We, we deliberately brought forward a lot of accounting treatment, which made it look like the loss heavier than it was, but it was all non-cash. At the same time, we brought in a lot of money from the market. So, you know, we filled our, filled our coffers so we have a war chest because I think in the second half of the year, there's a lot of interesting companies that are not doing very well, but have excellent long-term prospects. A company like us right now, looking at those type of opportunities as potential accretive acquisitions to give us a boost even further, push us even further out front. Okay, so you're generating a bit of, a bit of cash at the moment. Q3, Q4 should be better. And I guess at some point you'll update us and uh, say what you think next year is going to be. Um, but let's move to the FinTech component, if I may, because you, you talked about you know your... You have invested in various technology companies along the way, and I, you know, I'm interested in this because you've told me the big prize here is picking up this, say, three percent coupon off of the energy supply. That's where the real money is. So, to control that, you need to have something to be able to, you know, take take collect that money through an app you're, you're talking about here. 
That doesn't sound particularly expensive or complicated, is it? No, it's not. It's not. I mean, for the most part, when we did the deal with the China Union Pay, we're using most of their back-end back infrastructure. So we're just producing a front-end app that facilitates, you know, and there'll be a connection into the different charging network providers. But again, it's all ABI handshakes, right? So um, in terms of, of the technological lift, uh, not, not terribly heavy to build some, some mobile apps and some connections to some partners. Um, you know, but but the, the challenge will be um, China does everything at scale. So how to launch the app, how to make sure, you know, the equivalent of the Amazon Web Services that we're using over there, we're, we're partnering with the right partner um, to, to make sure that it's robust enough for the growth that we anticipate. That's the real challenge. Okay, so when you said at the beginning, we're focusing on two things, EV, the EV thematic and FinTech, what, is, is that what you mean by FinTech? Uh, no, so in, in the, to some degree, yes, but, but we have a number of uh, interesting investments in uh, uh, the blockchain space. So we have a at a Hong Kong that we have a minority position in called Liquify. They're a real estate tokenization platform. We believe that's a big play in the future, getting those illiquid assets liquid. But the regulators are just not ready for that secondary market trading that will create the liquidity. Right? We have investment in a platform called TM2, blockchain-based, without a token, which is interesting for the regulators, um, commodity trading platform. That's a very another, another interesting one. We own a company called DBOT, which is a, uh, a licensed broker-dealer. It's an ATS, an off-market exchange. Um, so the idea is to link those technology platform providers with a FINRA-regulated entity when the markets are ready for it, so that we can start, you know, producing products for the uh, uh, for the trading markets as well. What, that's got nothing to do with the EV thematic. Why, why are they in this entity? Well, it it, it has actually. Um, uh, at the beginning, the reason that we got into the EV space is that when China mandated all the city buses be changed in 2018, by the end of 2022, um, it underwrote all the ticket for all the city bus companies. It did it at a high interest rate and it told them, when you have the rolling stock, when you have the bus inventory delivered, go out to the capital markets, okay, and ABS refinance to pay us back and get yourself a lower interest rate. We went in and pitched for a portion of that business using blockchain. And what we said is we can use our blockchain-based system, okay, to streamline the underwriting process and help you get better rates in the markets. Because if you remember in 2008, right, one of the reasons the mortgage crisis happened is because people put a thin layer of good quality real estate mortgage assets at the top and filled it up with a lot of bad stuff. If you give the underwriters and the investors access through blockchain, they can look at all the assets that are held within that ABS package, okay, and they can see that it's, uh, it's all high quality stuff and they can make a proper investment decision. So you don't have to you know, push these synthetic products out layered with stuff that looks good but really isn't. So we went in with, a, with, a, with a, an approach to do that from the marketing, the transparency perspective, but to also streamline it. Now, if somebody does ABS right now, whether it's for buses or it's for ships or it's for airplanes, um, some poor junior analyst has got to go with their iPhone and take pictures of all the stock and the VIN numbers or equivalent, right? You don't need to do that today. Okay, you get an API from the manufacturer, get an API from the bus company or whoever it is, right? You connect them both to the blockchain. The manufacturer gives you all the digital images, all the VIN numbers, all the um, spec of the vehicles, okay? And the bus company will also be able to tell you all the dynamics of it for the investor. This is the route. This is the amount of passengers. This is the amount of revenue. You can do it in near real time with, with uh, internet over vehicles. Here's all the information. Here's the package. 
you know, uh, underwriters price it for the market. Market says we love it, we understand what it is, we can see clearly. That's how we got into the EV business, using the blockchain. So that was an unintended consequence at that time. And you know, we didn't know how successful we would be when we went and pitched that. And when we pitched that, we, we got a certain amount of the business in China from, as a result. Can you see why that might be confusing to the market though? Because you know, the, people, the EV thematic is quite a big one and you're involved in a lot of moving parts within that thematic. You know, and I think you've done a great job of putting those parts together. And as I say, if you can, if you can get this three percent, you know, thing, it, it would be amazing. But layering in different products, or brands, or service offerings under this public company, it's it feel, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of moving parts. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit confused. Well, well, when we, when we first came into the business, obviously this was an old media company that was looking for a new business model. The media business had failed. Okay, so what do you do when, you, when you're creating a business? Okay? You take your underpinnings of something that can be transformative, which in our case is technology. We always look at technology for, for the driver. Okay, so we, the, the chairman had some investments in AI, in blockchain. We said, okay, where can we apply these? The obvious place to go is financial services. They come rain or shine, these guys, you know, consume these types of services and these can be important transitional tools okay and then we got into the ev side of it as i said as a derivative of those investments in blockchain okay what i've been trying to do in the last couple of years as you know is shut down a lot of the other components of the business that we're currently not pursuing right so now we understand what the business model is we have two business models one's financial services one is um, ev there's a large financial service to ev because of the payments for the energy because of the lease financing, because of the ABS refinancing needs to be done. So they do actually have a strong linkage. And everything else I've been, and I've communicated obviously publicly in our filings, you know, we're looking to divest, specifically because of the reason that you mentioned, right? It's because, you know, we were this thing that was coming together and forming. Now we have this nucleus of a business that we, we want to focus on. Um, you know, we want to get rid of all the peripheral stuff and, and you know, make some clear communication to the market. Excited for the rest of this year, or is it just firefighting? Um, excited for the rest of the year. Uh, very disappointed not to be in China. Um, I was going for a week to 10 days every month for, you know, pretty much since I joined the company. So I spent a good amount of time there. And, and although I can see the progress, I can't see it, touch it, and taste it as I could if I was on the ground. So, you know, important things like launching our, our um, MEG center in Qingdao. Um, you know, I was there, I toured it. You know, we signed the lease uh, on it in November last year. Um, you know, we're renovating some parts of it, but a good chunk of it's online already. Um, I want to be a part of that. And as the CEO, I want to be there. And, and you know, I want, I want to be involved in making sure the team on the ground is motivated. We've got the right culture in place, um, supporting them properly from a business perspective. Um, you can do all those things remotely, um, but, but you feel much more comfortable when you can be there and, and be an active part of it. Okay, Alf, like, I appreciate that run through. Like I said, first time I've heard the story, it's, it's I mean, fast moving is, an, I guess, an understatement um, and a pretty exciting space to be involved in as, as well. So uh, you should come back on, you know, if you do get back into China or if you've got some news, I mean, do let us know because I'd be very keen to sort of see how you're getting on. Appreciate your time today. Excellent. Thank you very much. Pleasure being on. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.